Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. I do a lot of promoting of capitalism on the show, as my regular guest and my regular audience knows. And today I thought I'd have on a professor who could teach us a little something about the history of capitalism. Professor Lewis Hyman is a historian of work and business at the ILR School of Cornell University. He is also the co-author of five books, the most recent of which is Temp. Welcome to the show, Professor Hyman. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Happy to talk about the history of capitalism any chance I get. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, before we can get started on the history of capitalism, let's figure out what exactly we're talking about. What is a good definition of capitalism? This is a big question, and people argue about it often without any kind of conclusion. <laughs> so the way I usually talk about capitalism is the basic idea that you have capital to invest it's a mentality and a set of institutions that allow you to put that money into something and then get more money out of it with a goal of making more money. And this seems like, hey, professor, isn't that what everybody does for all time and place? And it's absolutely not true. And that's sort of one of the, one of the interesting things about the history of capitalism is that it's only a few hundred years old and this thing I'm to you is particularly aberrant human behavior. So a standard dictionary definition of capitalism is private ownership of the means of production. Uh, I've also heard it defined as the system by which, the economic system by which individual rights or individual property rights are, are protected. Do you have an issue with those definitions or do they fit in with the definition you provided? I mean, that that's that's pretty true. I mean, for the most part, yeah, mostly the private owns of the means of production. But I think the problem with it is that you have people who own the means of production for thousand, you know, feudal estates and things like that. But there's claims on those for that land and things like this. So maybe you could contest that. But for me, it's it's that abstraction of the means of production so that you're not saying oh i care about land or i care about you know this particular way particular business but all i really care about is making more money out of the money i have and it's that kind of abstraction that really allows for capitalism to take off okay so capitalism like you said it's only a couple of hundred years old really um, yeah. what were some precursors to capitalism so the classic precursor is, of course, feudalism. So where you have a bunch of serfs, they're bound to the land. Um, there's all kinds of rights on the land and rights over the serfs by their manorial lords. Um, and this is sort of the classic way of thinking about the European economy and the transition out of it. But of course, this is actually a pretty normal way of organizing society that some kind of strongman has claims on the people. Um, and actually, when I start my history of capitalism course, I start by saying, that's actually pretty normal. And if I can give you an example, you'll agree that this is actually a more normal kind of behavior in a low technology world, a place where people are more valuable than, mon than money or, or things. And the example I always give my students is, imagine you have a magic machine that you put water into and beer comes out. What do you do with that? And of course, I'm talking to a bunch of 18 year olds. You know, what do you <laughs> what do you do with that, right? And like one kid raises his hand and squeakily says, 
oh, I sell it. I sell it. I sell it. I'm like, do you? Is that what you really do? And that's and the other kids go, no, bro. What you do <laughs> is you give it to your friends and you have a big party, right? And that is actually true. Like that is what people do. If you get some kind of excess, you don't really then hoard it to yourself and then reinvest it in some kind of way. What you normally do if you're most people in most places and most times is that you give it to people. Uh, you have a kind of gift exchange with them to get them in your debt. And what begins to change with the rise of capitalism, you know, roughly around 1500, 1600, 1700, a couple hundred years, people begin to imagine themselves outside of those social relationships, right? That money is a thing in itself. The individual exists, um, you know, and it's and it coincides with the rise of things like the enlight Enlightenment thinking. And I'm, I'm glossing over a lot. So for you, for some real historians listening, please don't bring out your pitchforks. Um, but this this way, this new way of thinking about the world is tied up with new kinds of institutions like long distance trade um, with ships and uh, also with banks. But humans had always had trade. They had always had some kind of labor relation. But what really changes is this new kind of mentality and a set of institutions that allow people to invest. And so one of the places that historians look to as the origins of capitalism is they actually look to Holland. And you're like, what, Holland? That's so weird. Is it because of the trade? It's like, no, it's because it was one of the first places when they start to, you know, you've heard of the, the, the dikes and the seawalls and everything. When they start to do this, they start to create land. And this land has no feudal lord controlling it. It's new land. So how do you do it? Well, you have to invest money to build the machines and the walls and everything. And then you have this land. And so for the very first time, you start to get this idea of investment without obligation. Um, anyway, I'll stop there. But then it just, it that's sort of the story and that, that discontinuity is so important understanding it. So what about the mercantilist system? What, what can you tell us about that? Oh, sure. I mean, so so mercantilism is a kind of trade system where you want to keep the trade within the empire. Um, and so the way you should, and it speaks to the nature of things like the early corporations. So corporations existed sort of like the East India Company um, and things like that existed really as a military feudal arm of the state. That conducted business so they weren't like today's corporations like if i go down to walmart you know they're making lots of money but they don't have a bunch of armed ships um moving goods back and forth from china with a bunch of cannons they aren't organizing um you know armies that are basically as large as the u.s military and this is what you have when you talk about mercantilism it's this transitional kind of system that really centers on the state um, as the main beneficiary of trade. And it's focused on military control of long distance trade, very limited kinds of production. Um, but it also puts all kinds of constraints on merchants and trade. Um, and the tensions over that we see in things like the Boston Tea Party where Americans don't want to pay extra taxes to the monopolistic corporation that's part of the British Empire. And 
you know, that's part of what brings about American interest in things like free trade and also, you know, other places too. Yeah. So what role did ideas have in the rise of capitalism? For instance, I think in 1689 or 1690, you have John Locke's two treatises on government, 1776, of course, the Declaration of Independence and the publication of, of the inquiry into the nature of causes and wealth of nations. How do those, the ideas that were flourishing in the Enlightenment, help facilitate or lead to the, the growth of capitalism? They're extremely important um, because it's ideas that both cause new kinds of institutions to come into being, um, and not just ideas about the self, but ideas about you know how should we organize ourselves. And so it's not simply uh, a withdrawal from society and some kind of like, I'm a, I'm a rock, I'm an island kind of individual, but new ways of thinking about what people should do together. So... You know, when I talk to students, they often say, oh, capitalism, easy. It's the steam engine. It's like all the, it's this sort of, you know, all this technology stuff. They have a technology story. But I say to them, how useful do you think that would be if we all just worked at home in our little thatched huts? And they go, what do you mean? I say, well, until you have a, people working together in one building, you can't really mechanize that work. And so what historians point to are things like the industrious revolution of roughly 1700, the same the 18th century that you were just talking about, a time when people begin to imagine individuals in out of society, you know, but also being put back in, right? So instead of starting with that relationship between you as a serf and your feudal lord, you start with this idea of the individual and you say, well, what is the relationship between individuals? What is the relationship between the individual in a world where there is no sovereign, right? This is fundamentally what democracy is. Um, and it's a pretty radical reimagination, both of ourselves. And it leads to all these consequences of like, well, okay, well then how do we live together? How do we organize our work? How do we organize our businesses? Um, and by the end of the 18th century, you go, you have this incredible boom in production, what historians call the consumer revolution, uh, especially in the United States. People come from Britain and they look at the US and are like, wow, you guys are very rich. Um, and then we revolt and we incorporate all these ideas, both of capitalism, nascent capitalism, um, really emphasizing a kind of you know sovereignty of the individual, um, in a world that is not industrialized yet, right? So that the imagination of what, to how democracy links with the economy in the American context really is, you know, the human farmer, farmer living out on their own, independent, um, relate in relation to the market, but kind of sovereign from the market. And so it's it's a real break with how people had imagined life before them. So from my understanding, yeah, capitalism. Britain was, you know, had the like you said, the Industrial Revolution. It starts in Britain. It, it starts to expand, but in Britain, I wouldn't call that a purely capitalist system. Not even close, because they still had state-run monopolies. You know, the East India Company and whatnot. By the eighteen hundreds in the United States, 
from my understanding, the eight, the 19th century of the 1800 United States is the closest that anywhere has ever come to having really a pure capitalism. Cause there's always been government interventions, whether it be mm. through banking or tariffs or taxation or whatnot. So first of all, is that accurate that the United States achieved the closest that we've ever really seen to capitalism in, in the 19th century? If you think of capitalism as unfettered markets where like no state is intervening, right? Um, then yeah. And it was pretty it was pretty chaotic. And it goes from a world where there is lot there are all kinds of regulations, there's all kinds of monopolies. And in fact, um the corporations in the US are the only reason that ju they justify them. Um, is by saying we want to have a monopoly on behalf of the state to do things like build a bridge or you know build a road or things that are too expensive for ordinary people to do. But otherwise, we don't want to have corporations. We want to just have individuals and the individuals be responsible for the debts that they incur. Yeah, you have things like free banking, which you know is as close as you can get to cryptocurrency in the 19th century. The idea that um, there is no official U.S. currency. I don't know if you've come across this or not, but um, every single bank could issue their own currency. Um, and this is true all the way through the Civil War. And so wherever you would go, you would have these big books of all the different currency around the country. And it would be like, oh, that's a real dollar from, you know, Mississippi, or that's a real dollar from Maine. It's really not until after the Civil War that you have a unified currency. And actually, you get a more, you know, federal approach in the aftermath of the Civil War that these United States become the United States, you know, the plural to the singular. Um, yeah. And part of that is this idea that you are outside the regulation of the state, but also the changing nature of you know, how the economy operates, it becomes more and more consolidated and people, you know, look to the state to balance out those forces, right? So that this is the essential tension between uh, a Jeffersonian vision of independence, uh, owning your own farm, of being free in this way, um, and the rising industrialization by the end of the 19th century. And Americans didn't really figure out how to square that circle. And we certainly didn't in the 20th century. There wasn't this, um, there's always this, this tension in our, our imaginations of like, how do we get free um, from, from wage labor, um, which people denounce widely in the 19th century, um, but somehow gets celebrated in the 20th century. And I think we're still struggling with what that is. Like, how do we own our own production? How do we make our own hours, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which is still a question for Amer open question for Americans. So who, who were the critics of wage labor? I mean, there were critics of wage labor on both the left and the right. Um, so, you know, you think of people like Karl Marx, for instance, a well-known fella um, saying that if you, if you have nothing to sell, you know, but your time, but your hands, you're not really free. Right. You're always in control by the people who own the capital. Um, and then there's people who say, you know, more from a, a right wing persuasion. Um, look, we, we have this wage labor system and all it's doing is creating these merchant princes, you know, that the, the whole just like people, you know, criticize today, sort of the Elon Musk and the tech oligarchs and stuff like that. 
that there is an, an accumulation of capital and we need to do something uh, to refashion a world where people control their own lives and control their own time. And so, yeah, this is, this is the, this is a critique of wage labor and certainly other definitions of capitalism center that transition to wage labor as part of the conversation. And there is that tendency, but not necessarily. You could imagine other kinds of capitalism where people do have, you know, control over their own capital, their own, you know, means of production. Okay. I want to come back to the wage labor in a second, but first I want to ask in terms of, I don't really like the term, but for lack of a better one, GDP growth. Okay. In general standard of living in the 20 in the 19th century, what happens with the advent of capitalism and, you know, the effects on production, yeah. on uh, life expectancy, population growth, all, you know, all the basic metrics that we use? Well, there's actually this is a, the amazing story. Um, and it's hard to get our heads around because we live in a time of change. But for most of human history, the GDP, that is the amount of economic activity per person or per capita was roughly constant. So life in 1700 was roughly like life in 100. Um, so if you look at, you know, the technology, it's not that, I mean, there's differences in technology over well, 1700 years, but it's not that different. Um, you begin to see a slight increase uh, around the middle of the 18th century, around 1750. It really, accelerates after around 1880 and then it just booms in the 20th century and this starts in western europe um but really the whole planet and this you know this leads to all kinds of things like you know life expectancy which is actually more about having sewers and clean water um than anything <laughs> than making money but it allows for these kinds of public works projects it well, allows hold on for hold on yeah. It's more about having clean water than it is about having money, but having money yeah. and having free time allows you to create stuff like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah. The sort of economy allows, allows you to, to do that. Um, but, you know, we, we see this incredible boom in production that comes out of an incredible boom in productivity that comes out of capitalism, that comes out of um, the ability to invest capital where you get the biggest returns um and that is you know the magic of smith and the magic of, of markets um there's downsides it creates incredible inequality in certain moments and places um it leads to all kinds of ecological carnage in certain ways but there is this amazing thing where there's an incredible boom in productivity the likes of which humans have never seen before okay so you, you said a bunch so i want to get i want to <laughs> When it comes to the, the idea of, I think Marx called it wage slavery, when you when you are working for somebody else. But if we have a, a freedom, what I mean by freedom is there's no uh, force or threat of force making people do stuff, right? There's no one with a gun to your head saying you have to do this. So it seems to me that some people would save, some people would spend, some people would rather take risks, some people would not. And if it ends up that some people choose to work for other people, that's what would happen in a free society. And if you try to stop that, the only way to do so would be by force. Mm. So, so I they, like so wage labor, and then in terms of the, like you said, the inequality, 
and yes, you might have inequality, but the inequality, the people at the low end of that, for instance, if you go back to say uh, the time of Henry VIII, and you look at the way the feudal lords are, are living, the way that your wage laborer today lives is far superior to then, but there's the, uh, uh, you know, giant inequality gap because some people are living much better so you have sort of what they call relative deprivation not actual deprivation yeah totally and of course there was inequality between the king of england of and yeah. ordinary yeah. serfs yeah 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 no yeah and yeah i mean i think and it's better to be a wage slave i think than a <laughs> you know slave slave right <laughs> i mean this and this is important right that that it's not perfect there's still constraints on you and your freedom that if you want to eat you have to work if you want to eat you know and access to that but isn't but that the nature of life i mean isn't life it doesn't life entail there's restraints on us i mean if i even if i'm alone on an island right yeah. assuming assuming there's resources there i have to work if i want to eat i mean i can't just lay down on, on my uh I don't know, hammock. And even if I have a hammock, I would have to make the hammock. So, I mean, I would still have to work. I mean, th that's not inherent to just capitalism. That's inherent to life. Ye well, yeah, I guess it depends on what kind of, in this gets to the, to bringing back our friend Karl Marx, you know, imagining what kind of economy you want to have, right? So, um, you know, we make so much stuff, you know, if we just gave it away, maybe that would be enough. This is the thinking that people have around that, um, I don't think that would be a good idea um, for lots of reasons, mostly because I think people are happier when they're. Um, but then it's a question of, you know, how much should people work? How much time should they spend? Which is also a kind of moral question. But you, yeah, you, to, you hit the nail on the head there, because I was just going to ask. Those are moral questions. Those yeah. aren't economic questions. And then you have to answer, well, by what standard of morality? How are you judging this stuff? Which is I'm all for. But just when you're talking about pure economics, yeah. In a, but a lot of times, I mean, we stray. And like I said, I'm okay with with the, the moral arguments. But as long as that we're clear that that's what is taking place, because I find often, like I, it, my antenna went up just now, and then you actually said it. Because most people don't. The while you're in a conversation, in my experience, anyway, I shouldn't mm. say most. I haven't talked to most people, <laughs> but in my experience, a, a lot of people anyway will slip in moral claims mm -hmm. as if they're self-evident and don't need to be proven first you, you know what i mean okay so we've gotten through the the, the sort of uh, industrial revolution and the meaning of capitalism and some of the critiques of capitalism now around i don't know even before the new deal and the great depression hoover under hoover they start interfering in the economy more so than what what had taken place previously yeah but in America, we had never seen anything like the New Deal, right? Once the New Deal comes into play. So tell us a little bit about that and how the American economy changes from a relatively free capitalist economy, although not completely free, but relatively free, to the New Deal welfare state. Yeah. So what happens in the decades, I'm going to back up a little bit to the turn okay. of the century, because part of what happens is you have the corporate reconstruction of American capitalism. So you go from a country that roughly has a lot of petty producers and rural life to a country where 
a lot of the big money is being made in things that are in trusts, right? So you have all these new monopolies and they're like the tobacco trust or the leather trust or the, you know, whatever trust you want. And then it gets just accelerated by the electric, new electric industries. And most important of which is the car that you have these huge new industries that are deeply incompatible with an independent work you know, producer workforce of the 19th century. And you end up with this crisis where in the 19th century, no matter what you made, people would buy it um, because there was just fundamentally scarcity. The 1920s, you start to be in a place where you're making so much stuff that you have to lend people money to, to buy it ahead of time. And so you have this boom in credit. And you end up with Herbert Hoover, who's a very smart guy, um, believes in free markets, is an engineer, is fundamentally perplexed by how supply and demand could have fallen apart in the economy. In steps Roosevelt. Roosevelt is not a smart guy. Roosevelt is a guy who says, let's have lots of different approaches. You got, on the one hand, you got the, the, the heads of Citibank telling him, you need to rebuild the, the mortgage market. You need to do it this way through the FHA. On the other hand, you have all these labor activists saying, no, we need unions, we need public housing. And so what you have in the 1930s is this really first time where there's just a set of broad experiments in how you manage the economy. And on the one hand, the memory of the New Deal is actually the least important part of it. So the memory we have um, when we learn about it in school is like, oh, they built a bunch of stadiums, they built a bunch of schools, they dug a lot of holes and then they filled them up. Uh, the reality is that the most important parts were run by, you know, financiers from Texas and New York City that figured out way to take all this capital that was sitting idle in banks and channel it into things like the aerospace industry to create a boom in that, to channel it into um, rural, rural electrification, to channel it into all kinds of new industries like electronics and so, and housing, of course. Um, but it really was, doesn't really get at that core issue. It just reinforced that corporate capitalism. It reinforced that sort of, the, the dependency of the economy on these big forces it, it dealt with the way it had stalled out in the early 30s for various reasons um but it didn't change that question and then so what it and then you get the big the big trade-off where you say hey american worker you get to keep your job you get to be it gets to pay you enough to live in the suburbs um but it's going to be terrible it's going to be soul crushing you're trying to wrench all day on an assembly line um, but, you know, and so you see in this big moment after the war, basically everyone starts working for these big corporations. And so it just really consolidates that shift that you see at the end of the 19th century, um, and the intervention, intervention into everyday economic life by the federal government, um, and fed the federal government really coming to the fore at the center of policymaking. That's how I would talk what about are it. what are some of the policy changes, the interventions, the entitlements that came out of the New Deal? Yeah, I mean, so you get all kinds of things. You get, you know, Social Security. You get um, basically an attention to where 
capitalism wasn't delivering enough to ordinary folks um, where they sort of fell through the crevices. Um, that part kind of stuff like social security and then set the stage for the expansion of welfare benefits um, through the 20th century though. It never was intended to be as big. Um, it was yeah. intended to keep basically old people from starving and under you know gutters and bridges. Um, but what you see is a new kind of relationship between the government, the federal government and the economy, the idea that the economy by itself can't function, right? And full stop, this is a new idea. Um, the idea that the government needs to interfere to keep it going. And I would argue that the interventions it makes, the, the federal government makes in the 30s and 40s are pretty interesting. Um, They're pretty what? But, you you kind of went fuzzy on us for a second. Oh, sorry. The, the interventions they make are pretty amazing, right? That they, they create the aerospace industry, the electronics industry, but it's through a partnership with uh, corporations and labor unions, um, you know, building out suburb, out, you know, um, advanced technology. But it becomes distorted by the 1960s. By the 1960s, you have you have a mis. People don't remember actually what they did. All they remember was that the government spent money, not that the government spent money on particular things. And so things begin to go off the rails in terms of government spending, I think, in the 1960s. So basically, the New Deal is like the camel's nose under the tent. Right. It, it, it gets in there and then we end up with 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 the growth of the welfare state. But the, in my view, you see me keep doing this is because I have my girlfriend's four year old in the next room and he keeps he keeps trying to come out and I'm telling oh, him that, oh, that, that's good. <laughs> um, it's based on the idea, right? All these interventions that capitalism is not working. Right, yeah. that that the free market has caused the Great Depression. Basically, that's where this stuff comes out, and something needs to change. And of course, we have the the teachings of Keynes come along somewhere during this time. But if the assumptions are wrong about what caused the Great Depression, then the assumptions about what it's going to take to fix it would be wrong as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I just could get a little bit into the weeds just for for a second here. So three economists that I know of predicted the Great Depression, Benjamin Anderson, Friedrich Hayek, and Ludwig von Mises. Okay. Irving Fisher, the founder of monetarism, didn't predict it, and John Maynard Keynes didn't predict it. Both of them took a bath, actually, in, in the Great Depression. The theoretical arguments made by Keynes, Hayek, and Benjamin Anderson are basically that through money manipulation done by the, the Federal Reserve Bank, created an artificial boom, the booming 20s, the roaring 20s, that ultimately led to a crash in, in the economy. And that the government interference in the terms of the Hoover administration, like the Smoot-Hawley bill, the farm subsidies, and then, of course, the New Deal prolonged what would normally have been a garden variety recession. Hmm. What are your, your thoughts on that? And I, I just, I don't want to get, I, I the thing you have to understand. So when I bring people on the show, when I'm going to debate with them, I tell them ahead of time, because I think that's only the courteous thing to do. Yeah. I didn't do that because I didn't know how much you and I would be disagreeing. So I don't want to get into a, a, a long drawn out debate, Yeah. but at the same time, I have an audience that's going to expect me to, to push back a little bit. So I just sure. want to get your thoughts on that. 
No, I mean, I think part of it's true. I mean, I think there's two things that really happened during the 1920s, right? On the one hand, you have this financial transformation, right? Where this, this you have this boom in the money supply. Um, you have an explosion in credit and um, you see that credit in everything. You have it for cars, for houses, for, um, you know, stock, the stock market. I mean, that you could borrow to invest in the stock market. Um if you were just like a regular person, you know, there's this huge boom in art and fake money, right? Because uh, that's, you have this huge multiplier effect. You do also have a real expansion in productivity, right? I mean, you have a real expansion of what people are making that they, this is the, this is Fordism. This is, this is the factory. This is the ability to churn out all those Model Ts and eventually other beautiful cars as well. Um I think it, it. I think it comes to a head um, first with the stock market. With you know, you don't need to get into all the fanciness to understand that if you borrow a ton of money, <laughs> and, and then the price like wobbles, then the leverage takes you down even further, right? So sure. it's leverage, um, and then you also have a problem where so much of the housing market is funded by short-term bonds and short-term bills. Um, in balloon mortgages, right? And so people who do get their money back are like, well, I'm not reinvesting in all these mortgages. So there's no long-term stability in the mortgage market. And these two things kind of reinforce one another, um, I would argue. And it's not until they take a lot of time to unwind all those toxic assets and to figure out, well, how do we have long-term funding for housing? How do we regulate the stock market so that we can still have, you know, a stock market without small investors getting too much leverage, you know, meme stocking themselves. Right. Um, so they get the sec. Um, I think that there's all that stuff. And then the question is, would it just have gone back to normal? And this is the question eventually. Yeah. Um, but, and certainly we had a big depression after the 1920s, but America had been in a depression in rural America since World War One, more or less, right? So World War One, through the post-war, rural America is not doing great, um, as if you remember your Grapes of Wrath. So one of the questions is like, well, how do you get more people back to work? How do you get money flowing into the, the new sectors of the economy? So one of the arguments that economic historians make is, yeah, exactly your argument that the new vigorous parts of the economy, like the chemical industry, the era is doing great, you know, six months after. The problem is that there was so much of the economy was in these older kinds of industries. Um, and I think this is something where, where Schumpeter would agree and Hayek would agree that, that it was hard to transition into that new industry because of the failure of the private financial markets. Um, and so what the federal government does, it steps in and tries to to handle that. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's just that's just how I think about it. I guess I think okay. about the economy as just a series of leading sectors um, that produce a lot of growth, a lot of profit. And then that if that capital then can be reinvested in the next yeah. leading sector, then we can keep going. And otherwise, yeah. things fall apart. The only place where I, I I think that Hayek would disagree is yeah. not that there wasn't investments in these faulty assets or, or faulty you know uh, productions, in that it's difficult to transition 
out of them once you're invested is Hayek would have argued that it was the, the policy of the Federal Reserve by lowering the interest rate, increasing the money supply that led to those malinvestments to begin with. And once that's done, then yes, you have the difficulty that you're talking about of, of transitioning into the, you know, the next phase or the, the what, what the economy actually needs, what the people are actually demanding. So what do you think this, what's the state of capitalism today? Hmm. Not just in America, but everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I mean, capitalism continues to grow. Like given a choice, people have capitalism. They have capitalism in communist China for, for, for <laughs> Lord's sake. Right. Um, I mean, I think for me, the thing I wrestle with is how do we maintain this growth um, so that we can bring billions out of poverty? Like for me, that I had this transformative experience once traveling in rural Turkey. And, you know, and I was I was looking around this is 20 years ago and I was like, oh, my God, this is what the whole world. And I knew actually this is what the whole world was like. But the idea of like, well, how do we get all these people up to an American standard of living? How do we help all these people transition um, from being peasants and feudal peasants into living the kinds of lives that we would all like to see people live? I think that's really important. And I think the global question is really important because there's a lot of people in the world. And we have a lot of problems. And among those people is some genius that can fix our problems. But right now it's just like hauling water to his hut. Uh, from the river and that for me that's the failure it's a failure of capitalism that people aren't all part of it um i think we need to balance that against like how do we find that next new technology that actually is like the car that actually is amazing and benefits people and isn't just something dumb like social media that just makes us all sad and angry you know how do we how do we figure out a way to create a connect science and technology and, and, and markets. Uh, so that's, that's where I think about it. Um, and I think there's a lot of roadblocks to that right now. Um, and then I also think about it in this longer term of this question of Jeffersonianism, you know, how do we get free? You know, how do we use capitalism to liberate us from corporate jobs and have choice? and be productive and still work. And, and I guess I've drank a little bit of the Kool-Aid on the independent workforce, but I like the idea of figuring out how to make that work, um, you know, so that we have security and freedom at the same time, which I think is the real goal. The goal isn't to have us all have nine to fives. The goal is to help for us all to get free and also have enough economic security that we can meaningfully participate in a democracy. This is the fear among Jeffersonians. And the, this is why people couldn't, a lot of people couldn't vote. Like men couldn't vote unless you had a certain amount of property. The idea being that if you were afraid, if you were on your knees, you had to listen to your boss, you couldn't vote uh, because you would just always, you wouldn't be free enough to vote. And I feel like a lot of us are like that now, that we're all afraid, we're worried about where we're coming from. And without that kind of freedom, that economic security, we can't really be free. And for me, that's a, just a deeply American value that um, I think isn't talked about enough. Well, the problem, like, okay, so you mentioned Turkey, for instance. Yeah. But Turkey, first of all, culture, culturally, and then politically, is why a country like Turkey is in the position Turkey is in. 
if they would change their culture and change their politics, their economics, really, their economic system, then it would change. Now, the American worker today or the average American citizen today, we've got, what, $33 trillion in debt that, that's been accumulated you know, to pay for a giant welfare state. We've got Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid all you know are having problems with with financing and that also leads to all types of government corruption and inefficiencies in, in the markets we've got the how many the fda sec so many controls on the market all over the place so from my perspective to then look at the system today and say well look we have some of these problems are caused by capitalism when in reality we haven't had real capitalism ever and we haven't even been close in a very, very long time. Yeah, I feel like part of the, uh, I mean, I, it doesn't bother me so much to like help invest in people. Like I firmly believe in investing in people, you know, like education, training. Sure. But couldn't like you do that on your own? I mean, that that's the thing is, if you were to do that on your own, you would have far more incentive to do it right. And to make sure the money got to where it was going, get to the right people for the right reasons rather than having some Washington bureaucrat make these decisions. And it would also have the added virtue of you'd be doing it by choice and not being forced to do it. I mean, I think that there, there are definitely a lot of economists that I find very persuasive that say, just give people money um, and let them choose what they need to do to make their lives better, whether that's investing in education, whether that's just buying shoes. Um, there are... There's so much money being made at the top that it's distorting the people at the bottom. Um, but it's not clear to me that Washington has the answer. Uh, I really think they don't. And they try to, you know, figure out what how to solve these things. But, you know, I think part of it is this question, not just of institutions, but mentality. Like, how do you foster an entrepreneurial mentality rather than some their paycheck right we spent 100 years saying you don't have to worry about yourself just go right you know show, show up and get your paycheck whether it's a corporate job or from the welfare office and truly we've educated ourselves uh not we've we've got freedom um and i think that what we need to do is think about you know what would freedom look like um and so part of that's a freedom to fail but i also think that there's a lot more people who want to be free and would thrive in that kind of productive freedom than, you know, people in Washington or scolds like to tell people that uh, there would be. Okay. Professor Hyman, anything that you didn't get to say that I should have asked or any areas you want to address before I let you go? No, I also have a four-year-old and I can't imagine doing this while he was home. So I appreciate that. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think this is a great conversation. And, you know, whatever you think about economics or like this and that, I think what it comes back to this moral question of like, what are we solving for, right? Are we solving? Because I, I feel like freedom is a moral question, right? Like I do too. I could, have, I could have all the stuff in the world, but if I live in fear, if I feel like I can't speak my mind, I don't want to live in that world. Um, and that's the world of, of, so I think. Hold on, you we, blacked out again. That's a, that's that's the world of what? That's the world of China, a place oh, where, okay, yes. where you actually do have this rising prosperity. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important that we figure out and have a real conversation in this country about what kind of, 
what does it mean to be free in the 21st century? Um, and, you know, I'm excited that people like you are having this conversation. Well, thank you very much. And uh, you've been a, a real gentleman on the show today. I appreciate it. A nice conversation. Do you have a, a website or anything you want to promote where people can go if they want to read about you or anything? So I actually write about a lot of these issues in my last book, Temp, uh, about thinking about both right and left wing perspective on what the independent workforce can mean um, and the failure of corporate jobs in the 20th century, the American workforce. Um but yeah, and check out my website, lewishyman.com, if you want to That's read more. That's easy enough. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you very much for being here. For Real now, this is, this is The Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Remember, give me your likes. Hit the like button. Give me your comments. All that stuff helps. Till next time.